The holiday season requires a tremendous suspension of disbelief on numerous occasions, requiring any sane person to go against their instincts of what is dictated by logic. However, nothing is harder to believe than the notion that Mariah Carey doesn't want a lot for Christmas. Oh, spotty bell, spotty bell, swinging through midtown. Oh, what fun to sling a web and take the bad guys down. Spotty bells, spotty bells, quipping all the time. Oh, what fun to swing around New York while fighting crime. Quipping through the streets of New York every night. Wrapping bad guys up in my web so tight. Crawling up the walls, making villains fight. What fun to make the holidays free from crime tonight. Oh, spider bells, goblin smells, vulture laid an egg. Spider buggy blew a tire and venom got away. Hey, spotty bells, spotty bells, swinging all the way. Oh, what fun it is to fight the bad guys every night. Welcome to the Blackcast, a very special Spidey-centric installment of the Blackcast for maybe those of you who need a last-minute Christmas gift idea. Uh, this is a conversation that I had for Marvel TV Weekly over on AfterBuzz TV earlier this year with uh, an author named Matt Singer who has a book out called Spider-Man from Amazing to Spectacular. And then if you stick around, you'll hear a post-game chat with myself and our friend Jeff Winstead of The Alternate, now available on Comixology, who was in the live chat while I did the interview and uh, tried to uh, help me out of a couple of jams that I talked myself into. Uh, just tough to keep 60 years of Spider-Man straight in my head. But uh, let's get things started by welcoming to the Black Cast, Mr. Matt Singer. And again, the book is Spider-Man, From Amazing to Spectacular. Matt, welcome to the Blatcast. How do I look? Do I look good? You know, I'm going to have to, I'll have to defer to my producer in the booth, Jeff, because I actually don't see you, but I oh, feel, you see me. I well, feel I'll like, yeah, tell you, I, I look fantastic. Yeah. Look, I've seen photos, so I'm sure you look great. You know, what's, why is now going to be any different? Um, where I want to start with this is I want to start talking about Spidey himself and specifically your relationship with the character of Spider-Man. When and where do you first, or at least do you remember first encountering Spider-Man? Well, I don't remember it very well now, but supposedly my first encounter with Spider-Man was as a character on the Electric Company, the classic children's the, TV show where Spider-Man used to be a uh, recurring character. He would show up and he had his own segments. Yes, the, 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 spi the Spidey Super Stories, which uh, some of them would feature Morgan Freeman. And it's funny yep. that you say that because uh, that answer is often people of a certain age. Uh, I'm 43, and that's when I first discovered Spider-Man was on The Electric Company. I fell in love with the character on Spider-Man and his amazing friends, but that was definitely when I first saw him. So it's very funny that uh, you know we're basically first seeing him at the same experience. Right, yeah, that was, uh, we're... I guess of of a certain age, as you put it. <laughs> yeah. So that was that was that was where I first uh, encountered him, and um, yeah, was obsessed with him even as a one, two year old, whatever it was. My parents joke that I, that Spider Man was one of my very first words as a as a kid because I was so into him on that show, not knowing anything about 
who he really was, where he came from, what the character was even about, just enjoying those uh, appearances on the electric company. Yeah. And so that was that was it. And then certainly watching those cartoons like uh, Spider-Man and his amazing friends, which you mentioned was yeah. another big one. And then through there, discovering the comics after that. And and that was it. Yeah, I mean, it was sort of the same thing for me. I mean, I mostly knew superheroes. You know, I was fairly young. I saw the the first Richard Donner Superman, but most of the superheroes I knew, it was from Saturday morning TV. So I liked the Super Friends. I liked Spider-Man and his amazing friends. And yeah, I guess if it had friends in the title, it was age appropriate for me. Uh, but yeah, I think that uh, that show, it, it's it's clearly from a much gentler time, Spider-Man is amazing friend, because my son Felix is four. And as much as I want to have him like all the stuff I liked as a kid, I know that it's sort of a very gradual process and you have to kind of put your toe in the water a little bit. So we've watched a couple episodes of Spider-Man and his amazing friends. And, you know, maybe... Maybe it, it hasn't held up as well from an adult perspective, but watching it with my son, you know, I think that it's kind of the, the perfect foray into the character is maybe some of the, the older shows. And they're all going to be on Disney Plus. Not not that we're sponsored by Disney Plus, but all of those older shows are, are going to be out there so people have access to them again, which is I think is great. Um, you said you found your way to the comics. Uh, what are some of your earliest memories of Spider-Man in comic book form? You know, was it, oh, hey, I know him from TV. I want this story. Or, or how did you find your way to comics? Uh, well, I don't have a specific uh, answer in terms of like, oh, it was this storyline or this issue that I first remember reading. I mean, when I got a little older, then I, I could tell you like where it sort of when I became obsessed, sure. the ones that I remember when from a kid was just being at the, you know, like at the grocery store with my mother and, uh, you know, one of those deals where, well, if you're good, you can get a comic book. And so I would uh, behave well uh, and then just specifically to get the comic book and um, would would usually pick Spider-Man. That was yeah. that was always my favorite. And there's one that I remember. I don't know the number off the top of my head. But there's one that I remember that doing the research for the book was fun to go back and reread because I remember the cover vividly from from childhood. And it was it's an issue of Peter Parker, the spectacular Spider-Man. And it has uh, Spider-Man swinging and encountering this like giant monolithic, like bearded man in robes. He almost looks like a like a god or a deity of some kind. And it says like. Spider-Man encounters the hermit or something like that. Then you read the story. <laughs> it's this amazing, beautiful cover. Yeah. Very dramatic. And then you read the story and, you know, and you expect from the cover, well, he's going to meet some weird, crazy, godlike figure who has these incredible powers. And it's mostly about this, like, sad, nebbishy guy who, like, dropped out of society and became, like, an actual hermit. It's nothing at all like the cover whatsoever. There's so no giant hermits. It, it's basically, like basically uh, Spider-Man meets a homeless man? Is, is that essentially what it is? I mean, basically, yes. It's, <laughs> it's not that far off from that. Uh, it's a, actually a really good issue, but the connection between the cover and the art inside is tenuous at best. Yeah, but for I, some reason, when I was doing uh, the research for the book and looking back at sort of that era of Spider-Man, that was one I, that I like vividly. It was like uh, 
flashbacks. I'm, I'm really good with issue numbers of Amazing Spider-Man, but uh, I have to admit I did cheat and look this one up. But I, I did remember that I had it. It's Peter Parker, the Spectacular Spider-Man number 97. And yes, there it is go. Enter the Hermit. Uh, it's Enter the Hermit. Enter the Hermit. And then that's the interesting thing, too, because the first book that I got was uh, Peter Parker, the Spectacular Spider-Man. It was number 89 with this character, Spot, who is just a ridiculous character because, you know, he throws the spot up and he can sort of teleport around. And he's been used for comedic value in the years since. And I, I remember also I came in, I think it's around the same month, Amazing Spider-Man. It was 254. It was like right after he got the black suit. So it's all like black suited Spider-Man really for me, although he switched back pretty quickly. And, uh, you know, I was about seven or so when I started reading uh, regularly. And uh, these were... These are really memorable stories. Yeah, so I I have uh, looked at the PDF of your book, and it's even just on the computer screen, it's beautiful because, of course, you have the artwork that's from the the covers and the interiors of the stories and everything. Uh, I you know this is the sort of book where if you were going to do a, a history. I feel like you would need to officially partner with Marvel and be able to license all of that. So how does the idea come about? Like, I want to write a book about Spider-Man and then working with Marvel so closely that, you know, you have the access to what's seemingly everything. Right. So, uh, well, I would I would say that I would have wanted to have written a book about Spider-Man pretty much since those, <laughs> those Spidey uh, early super days stories. we were talking yeah. about. <laughs> I can't really say that this was my idea per se. Uh, the, the publisher of the book, Inside Editions, they have put out a series of books with Marvel, working with Marvel, that are kind of – they're very much like mine. Mine is sort of just the latest installment in the series where they give you kind of the history of a specific character. Um, and they've done some really good ones. They actually uh, – you know, they gave me some as I was preparing to write this one so I could kind of get a feel for what they were going for. And they've done a bunch including Black Panther, Guardians of the Galaxy, Black Widow. I'm sure there's others I'm forgetting. Sure. Um, but yeah, it's all done with Marvel and um, – Everything has to be sort of approved by Marvel, but uh, actually they they were very, um, you know, there was that was that was not an issue at all. Actually, it went really really well. And uh, in terms of getting specific things in it, I mean, um, I worked with my editor obviously, but it's it's uh, it's really just what uh, a lifetime of Spider-Man nerdery gets you when you go, okay, how do I condense all of that Spider-Man history into a single book? Um, and this is sort of what I came up with. And uh, yeah, it, it, what, writing it was the, almost the easy part. It was it was winnowing it down and figuring out exactly how to frame it and to squeeze it into one not especially big book. Uh, that was sort of the trickiest part, really. Yeah, I mean, I have one of those uh, coffee table books about sort of it's like a history of Marvel that only really covers the not even the whole 60s, you know, and it's. I don't know. It's like two phone books. Not that people remember phone books anymore at this point, but you know, it's it's just this. It's it's a great coffee table book, but I don't have a coffee table, so I'm like, it just right. I don't know where to put it. I would love to have it on display, but uh, yeah. So uh, and obviously, for those of you uh, just joining us, the book that we are speaking about it's called Marvel Spider Man from Amazing to Spectacular. Our guest is the author Matt Singer. Uh, I wanted to uh, sort of talk about you know as you look at the big picture and you kind of winnow it down uh we can you know there's going to be some some things that obviously are going to be included 
Was there anything about Spider-Man, maybe it's just a, a random villain or a storyline, like, I would have loved to have fit that in, but we need to, you know, almost stick to the greatest hits for the most part. Was there anything that you would have loved to have included that there just wasn't the room for? Uh, definitely. There was many, many issues that uh, I couldn't include. I tried my best to include as, you know, as much of both the important, you know, the classics, the most famous, the sure. most iconic issues. But you also want to include you want to try to include stuff that's maybe a little less famous because you want people, you know, like you or I, who is sort of love Spider-Man and know Spider-Man really well to also maybe, you know, learn some things as well or find things that they forgot about, haven't read, you know, that sort of stuff. But even um, as big as the book is and as much as it covers, there are, there are tons of things that you can't put in there or even things that like you include, but then you wish you could like spend 20 pages on and you only have five pages right. or 10 pages or whatever it is, you know, like just rereading all of the, um, you know, all of the Spider-Man for the book, sort of doing the research, you know, finding things that you remembered, oh, those were pretty good. And then going, oh, actually, these are great. Like the yeah. Tom DeFalco and Ron Friends run of Amazing Spider-Man, which is around when you were talking about yeah. first discovering it, because they were the ones doing all the issues where he first got the black costume. Yeah. The, those the, those the, issues are great. Yeah. The tail end of Roger Stern, the transition to Ron, De, uh, sorry, to Tom DeFalco. And you have Ron's, Ron Friends. To me, that's still sort of my favorite style of Spider-Man. Obviously, uh, you know, I was, what, like middle school, high school age when Todd McFarlane came on board, and that style was all very exciting. And I think visually, Todd McFarlane as an artist, I still think it looks really cool. I think it was all of the other people who were like, well, now why don't you try to draw like Todd McFarlane as well and see how that helps. I think his style on Spider-Man, it, it was just like, and it was almost like, how is this book so different? And, you know, uh, at that point, it was uh, David Mitchell Laney. I, I was I, I say all the names wrong. I I was talking to uh, I was doing an interview with Chris Claremont once about it. And I had to explain. I'm like, I, I sounded out how to pronounce these in my head when I was like eight or nine. So, you know, you look at like Bill Sienkiewicz and you're like, yeah, Bill Sienkiewicz. You know, you don't right. know. And uh, so uh, to, to that end, we'll sort of get back to what you're talking about. I saw that you have a forward from... Uh, J.M. DeMattis, but I'm probably saying his name wrong. <laughs> but he wrote. I think I think you got it right. Wow. But I, I I've had this issue doing interviews where yeah. I'm people are asking me questions and I'm talking about creators and I'm the same way. It's like yeah, you, you know we we grew up in uh, like a pre-podcast era, pre-YouTube interview era where these people were just names. You know they were they were I don't even know what they looked like. And so, right. yeah, you're trying to your best to, yeah, David Michelini, right. David yeah. Michelin, David right. Michelin. Well, I, I, I no used idea, to say, so. I, I read that as Michelin in, you know, like right. the Michelin man in the 90s. And then you hear it said Michelini and you're like, oh, uh, okay. I was just, I was just clearly way off. But uh, James DeMattis, who did to me, which is one of the greatest Spider-Man stories, which they ran through the three books for, I guess it was three months. No, two months. It was Craven's Last Hunt. Uh, so he wrote it, Mike Zek drew it, and it went through Amazing Spectacular and Web of Spider-Man over the course of a few months. And it's still the story that I don't think we're quite at a place where it should be a movie. It's just I eventually want it to be a movie. And he wrote the forward. Uh, so how exactly did that come about? I know you talked to a lot of creators for the books, uh, for, for this book, but how did uh, he become the one that wrote the forward to the book? 
uh, we asked him and he was nice enough to do it. That's, a, <laughs> uh, we, that's we, the best I way. Had, I, yeah, yeah, I had interviewed, I wish there was some very dramatic. No, look, I, I, I mentioned but... a moment ago, I was talking to Chris Claremont and somebody was like, well, how did you interview him? I was like, I, I, wrote, I wrote an email to the address on his website and uh, the right, person, that was it. I mean, the that's person who handles it said yes. interview yeah. for the book and he, yeah. and, I mean, I will say, you know, um, I, when he wrote, he, I did his uh, interview with him over over email and sure. his, his answers like were so like, I, I, you, I, I wanted, and this was not, unique to him either it's like i just wanted to like reprint the entire thing because it was so you could see he had spent so much time it was so thoughtful and yeah. well written and um so it was sort of a no-brainer to have him because you could tell he would he would do a fabulous job uh and he did but um yeah he he uh he, he he's interviewed in the book and there is a whole um a sidebar on craven's last hunt sure uh, that's an amazing storyline that was a, that was an example of like you know you were asking me like what was stuff you didn't uh, or what was the stuff you couldn't figure out, you couldn't fit in. And that was a case where I had written the chapter that sort of covers that storyline. And I, I, I couldn't, I, I fit it in, but it was kind of awkward and, and, and it, I didn't give it, I felt like it needed more space. And so when you see the book, you'll see it actually has like a whole, um, sidebar. We actually, um, took it out of the chapter and I expanded it and we gave it its own little two page spread in the book. And there's a few examples throughout the book of those. Because what happened was, as I was writing, I, I said to my editor, "Is like there's just so much stuff that I can't fit in, and I wish I, I would love to find a way to include more things. And could we maybe just throw in some sidebars, which I had seen in one of yeah. the other books that they had published? So that was what um, we did. And there's one for Craven's Last Hunt. There's one where um, there's one about Civil War and the, the famous." Uh, stuff about Peter Parker revealing a secret identity. There's one on untold tales of Spider-Man. There's one with uh, Alex Ross talking about how he redesigned the Spider-Man costume for the um, run recently where he was doing all the covers and he redesigned um, the costume. So there's a bunch of those throughout the book as well, which are uh, really cool. Yeah, I mean, and when you have a character that, you know, he's getting close to 60 years, I think it's 57 years since we've uh, first had Spider-Man, obviously, there's a lot to, to delve in. But I think that for a lot of people, it's like, what is the era where you find the character? And you referenced, you know, the it, it's the tail end of Roger Stern over to Tom DeFalco and just the just the beautiful, like, classic style of Ron Friends. That's what I was saying earlier. And... I, I, you know, just some of those stories, it was, it, it was great because it's really the period before they started trying to figure out, well, how many times a year can we have Venom and what way can we spin off Venom to be some similar characters like Carnage? And the first couple times it happened, it was all right, but it, then, you know, and this was just the industry in general in the 90s. This is not solely Spider-Man and it's not solely Marvel Comics. It was just like, you know, too many big crossover events and I, it just something about the, the book, I kind of lost interest. You know, maybe it was that's when I went into college, but I, I honestly, I, I read X-Men for years after I read Spider-Man, so there was just something that in this era right up until the early 90s, you know, from the mid-80s to the early 90s, he had, he had gotten older. He was in grad school. This is before they did any of the reboots and, you know, some of the the storytelling that uh, I won't put you on the spot about, but just stuff that I can't believe was published, you know, like, let's make a deal with Mephisto so that Aunt May's alive, but you never were married to Mary Jane. And it's all stuff I heard about, and I was like, oh, okay, so these books aren't for me anymore. 
they're just making them for somebody else. They want a younger audience to find them. But I also was recently rereading because I wanted to read the original Hobgoblin storyline from Amazing 238. And I was reading this and simultaneously trying to pick up some new Marvel comics. And, and it, new Marvel comics are very entertaining. But it's like, oh, yeah, but for me, this era is, is really it, – it's great. And when I was reading it, they were also – Marvel Tales, the reprint book, had started at Amazing Fantasy 15. So I was also at the same time every month getting to read the earliest stories. So, you know, because back then, like we were talking about, you couldn't – there was no Marvel Unlimited. There, there was no way that if if you wanted to read, you know, Amazing Spider-Man number fifty, you were going to have to try and find some money to go buy it as a back issue. You know, there was no access to any of this stuff. So it's it's great that now we can just you know with a click of a button read these comics and then also have a great book like yours. Um, when you said you reread it, did you? What did you reread? Did you reread like all of Amazing? What What did you actually choose to to reread as you were doing this book? Um, I I sort of picked areas. Well, I, I started from the very beginning. Sure. I read pretty much everything, uh, or reread you know pretty much everything from like one to like one fifty ish. Yeah. Um, and then it was more you know doing reading some of the books that I had never read because there certainly were some Spider-Man comics that I had never read, rereading stuff that seemed important, um, trying to hit every era, trying to hit every creator, trying to get a good sense of like, okay, this was Roger Stern, this was Jerry Conway, you know, this was what's a, what we can get a good sense of uh, uh, Mark Bagley and David McElhinney. I mean, those were the ones that I really loved when I was a teenager. Yeah. Um, right up and through, you know, uh, Straczynski and then going in through the brand new day stuff, just trying to like, at literally as, I mean, as much as I could on my, uh, very tight deadline, trying to cram in as much as I could and just get, you know, like as broad a range as I could too, so that the book really reflects everything. And it isn't just like amazing Spider-Man, even though that's generally the book where, you know, the most important storylines would take yeah. place. Um, and the one that I was, you know, already the most familiar with. Um, so trying to also read a lot of, I read a lot of spectacular Spider-Man issues that I hadn't read before. And there's a lot of great stories in there. And yeah, I mean, Peter, Peter David wrote uh, spectacular Spider-Man for a while. And, uh, I, I literally almost said those issues are spectacular and that is not what I intended, I, you know, to, to, you know, make the, the pun like that, but yeah, that, that, and it was sort of like a, a, a I remember a multi-part like death of Gene DeWolf storyline that they had, you know, it was, it was a, de- it was definitely a different feel between spectacular and amazing. And of course, before there was web of Spider-Man, there was Marvel team up, which I, I always liked because it was like, well, this week he's going to, you know, he's going to be with the X-Men and, you know, next month he's hanging out with Daredevil. I always liked the idea of an ongoing story where, you know, New York was a, New York's a big city, but there's a lot of superheroes running around in there. You'd think you'd run into them more often. Yep. Yep. And Marvel team up is definitely uh, covered there in the book. I mean, one of the things that surprised me rereading all those comics too was, I mean, I always loved spider-man the character and i had favorite storylines and everything but there were i i I don't know maybe if i reread all of hulk and all of the avengers and all of iron man i would find the same thing but i don't know i just found that there were so many good issues and stories even some of the smaller ones even the ones that are less famous you know the 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 famous stories like a craven's last hunt or you know they're they're like justifiably famous 
you know, even some of the just random issues by like Jerry Conway and, and Ross Andrew or, or Roger Stern or Tom DeFalco is like the, there were just individual issues where I was like, this is just a satisfying, beautiful, like little 22 page story. And it has pathos and romance and adventure. And there's a moral and there's a lesson. And Peter Parker is so interesting. And you can really relate to his plight. You know, even though it's he's this crazy character who can climb on walls and something and uh, swing on webs, that there's just something so yeah. elemental about him and relatable about him. And uh, I just was like, it was like the least painful research you can imagine for writing a book. It was, <laughs> it was so much, uh, it was just so much fun to be like, ah, uh, you know, uh, I gotta go read more Spider-Man yeah. comics tonight. <laughs> okay, see you later, wife and kids. I gotta go. Re- I gotta. This is my job. Yeah. I gotta Daddy, go read Spider-Man comics. Dad, Sorry, Daddy's working. And it's like, wait, yeah, it, 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 it looks like what I'm doing excuse. when I'm playing. Yeah, uh, you know, you talked about Peter Parker, and the the fact of the matter is, Spider-Man as the character in the suit is a great character because you know he's very lighthearted. He doesn't take things seriously, regardless of the situation he's in, but. Peter Parker is was just this anomaly in terms of secret identities because you know even you know obviously you're 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 Bruce Wayne you're Tony Stark you're a millionaire even when you're the X-Men well you live in a mansion you know and here's here's Peter Parker who you know Aunt May's in the hospital and he's like well I don't know how to pay for these bills and he's like I don't later he's like I don't know how to pay my rent and you know he just has like the real world problems and I just oh I think that must be what made him so relatable but I also think that that world was populated by such great characters like Aunt May and you know you have the tragedy of Uncle Ben and Gwen Stacy but then perfect larger than life characters like J. Jonah Jameson talk a little bit about sort of following some of the supporting cast as you you know tell his story on the whole like people who stand out as being important maybe like a robbie robertson or someone that maybe you didn't think of right away and then you're like oh yeah this is actually a really important figure in peter's life wow there yeah there's so many of them because the character has been around for 57 years (laughs) to me the most interesting thing was kind of seeing not just the characters grow and evolve but how different that some of them are depending on who's writing them Right. You know, like a character like a, an Aunt May, you know, used to be depicted as like she was like 90 or something and like yeah. constantly at death's door and and so ill. And then, you know, just like I, I loved reading the Aunt May and J. Michael Straczynski's run, like she's like almost like a totally different character in terms of, you know, and he said this to me when I interviewed him. It was like he always thought it was absurd to treat Aunt May as this like frail, you know, uh, old bitty kind of character yeah. who's – and who's so sort of not just like frail, but like emotionally fragile, like um, that, you know, Peter is so worried to tell her or for her to find out that he's Spider-Man because it could kill her. She couldn't handle it. And um, I mean, I don't think it's a coincidence that one of the things he did in his run was have Aunt May find out and, and, and deal with it. And that was J. And, Michael Straczynski who did that because that was right. I think that was issue 400. And I remember I wasn't reading the book anymore, but I remember being in a supermarket. And I'm like, oh, Spider-Man 400. I wanted to read it. And I was like, oh, because well, Aunt May dies in that, if I recall. And on her deathbed, she's like, I always knew you were Spider-Man. And then, and then it's like. I, I don't know how old I was at that point. I was probably, you know, or late teens, early 20s. And I was like, what? No, no, she did it. And I was like angry. But then, you know, later you think about how different, you know, how interesting it can be where just different creators 
have such a different interpretation of them. You know, when you talk about a guy like Chris Claremont who wrote X-Men for 17 years or Dan Slott, who I don't even know the the total number of issues he did of of Spider-Man. But I mean, it's was it like 15 years? Is that how long Dan Slott was around for Spidey or is it Uh, not quite that long? It's not quite that long, but it's in the name. It's like a little over 10 years. It's more than a decade. Yeah. Yeah, the 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 Amazing Spider-Man 400 you're mentioning that was J.M. Uh, Dematis. Oh, okay. That was during the the Clone Saga, and Aunt May did find out then that Spider-Man yeah. was uh, was Peter Parker and Spider-Man were the same person. But that was a uh, that was that they. That's not up, the same thing. Okay, not I the see. same thing. Yeah, All that's right. when they they ended up uh, retconning that whole thing. Yeah, they... <laughs> uh, but. The, the storylines I was talking about were a little bit later in the okay. mid 2000s with yeah with J Michael Straczynski and he he wrote a really fascinating and very sort of like tough Aunt May and that was what he said to me he was like you know this is a woman uh, who survived the death of her husband and raised this teenager who isn't even her son or her own she's got to be a pretty tough lady she should yeah. be able to handle this stuff and you see that reflected in his comics and so that was one of the things that i really enjoyed sort of revisiting those issues and also getting to hear from the creators when i interviewed them for the book was getting that perspective yeah. and seeing how they saw the characters and then finding that reflected in their work was was pretty cool right and i think you you'll see that sort of on, on the screen because you have the different representations of aunt may the sam raimi movies it was the more classic you know, Stan and Steve Dicko era Aunt May, but you know, and of course now we have Marissa Tomei, but if, in between you had Sally Field where it was sort of like, it kind of split the difference, you know, where it's like, well, she's not, she's not that old, you know, she's not, she's not a hundred, you know, and yes. then, and then when you have it be Marissa Tomei, it's such a different, it's a different feel for the character. And I think it's interesting to have those different takes, you know, obviously in the same way in the comics. And it, it's always interesting. I don't know if you ran into this when you, if you talked to Korea, creators who wrote at a certain point somebody else wrote and then they came back i I find that they sometimes have a tendency to undo stuff that happened while they were away and i I don't know if that happened much with spidey but i I know that that is specifically to refer back to chris claremont i know that when he came back to x-men they had they had uh, made kitty pride much older and he didn't like that so then she became young again you know so that's just mm. the one example that i know was, did is was there generally like a camaraderie between the different uh, different runs or were some people very a little bit more protective about the way that they approach the character versus to other versus others uh, i think it kind of varies i i it, it did seem what what did seem universal was the way that everyone revered sort of the the original vision of, of Spider-Man. And maybe that's why, even though the character changes, he, you know, you can draw a straight line from 1962 to 2019. And the, the character hasn't really changed that much. The core right. of who he is, is still very similar. And I think that's because, uh, one, the, the character that Stanley and Steve Ditko made was so perfect and the world around him was so interesting and fun that um, – you know, the, the the character just has resonated with so many people that um, when people kind of take on the book, new artists, um, it, it seems more like they want to honor that and maybe, yeah. you know, put their spin on it. But I, I, you don't really hear people saying, oh, you know, I never really liked Spider-Man. So I thought I would come <laughs> on the book and do something really different. Yeah. What you hear more is that people talk in reverent tones, understandably, about, you know, like the first you know, 50 to 75 issues, you know, Lee and Ditko and Romita and just how much those those issues meant to them and and how obsessed they were with the character. And then yeah. saying, you know, they wanted to, you know, like they wanted to honor that by both kind of 
finding the, the things that they, they loved in the comic then. And then instead of just rehashing, because nobody wants that, finding ways to kind of bring new things to the book while while still capturing the spirit, keeping the same you know values and ideas and just finding new ways um, uh, to do that. Or in the case of something like an ultimate Spider-Man, finding ways to update uh, the material so that the, the things that are timeless and universal about it can be kept in it while you also kind of update the fashion, the costumes, the pop culture references, all those sorts of things. Um, so yeah, I, you don't really see too many radical changes. I mean, Aunt May is a good example of what yeah. we're talking about. A character that has changed a lot. You know, she almost like, even at, you mentioned the movies, but even in the comics, she has almost kind of Benjamin buttoned a little bit where she started <laughs> older yeah. and she's getting, she's been getting, she's edging younger. She's not quite as, she's not like Marissa Tomei young in the comics, but she definitely has a, uh, she's more vibrant, let's say, uh, than yeah. she maybe was originally. But yeah, I think it's, it, it, it you don't see too many uh, huge examples of changes, kind of like you were saying with Chris, Chris Claremont in the X Men. There's a character. I mean, maybe if uh, you know Stan Lee had been around to come back and and write the character again, he might have done yeah. something more drastic. Well, yeah, you know, and right, as, he wrote the newspaper. I, strip I was just going to mention that. Yeah, Stan continued to do the newspaper strip, and and he right. and Mary Jane stayed married, and instead of being right. undone like that, because he's just like that's the story he wanted to tell, and sure. uh, yeah. Um, one person in particular that I want to talk about is Jerry Conway, because when he wrote the book, I, I've thought about this often, is in the course of one calendar year, you have uh, Amazing Spider-Man 121, Gwen Stacy dies, 122, uh, Norman Osborn slash Green Goblin dies. And then a little later that year, 129, you introduce the Punisher. And so in the course of a year, you have just the this like massive, iconic, you know, these things happen in his life. And I think if you're if you're a Spider-Man nerd, you know his name. But if you're not, you kind of know Stan. And then maybe not even that many people. You know, maybe if you read the book later, you know, you'll know a Todd McFarlane or something. But talk a little bit about his run and just why. I don't know. Did he feel like he had license to do whatever he wanted? Was there a conscious effort to kind of make waves in Peter's life? Uh, what did he say about his time on the book? Uh, there was definitely a conscious effort to make waves in Spider-Man's life. He did say that the death of Gwen Stacy kind of grew out of a feeling of sort of everyone who was involved in the book at that time, which included him. And John Romita was still there. He he was doing layouts. He wasn't drawing individual issues as much. Gil Kane was doing some of the, um, the, the, the illustrating at that time. And Roy Thomas was the editor of the book. And they all kind of felt that maybe the book was starting to get a little stale and um, – you know, they have some of the, their their stories differ a little bit in some ways, but eventually they felt like the best way to kind of shake things up was uh, what they came up with 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 the um, the death of Gwen Stacy, which is a very, you know, obviously one of the most important storylines ever uh, in Spider-Man history and very interesting today because it, you know, now um, the idea of like killing the hero's girlfriend has become such a cliche like there's you know it has like its own name of like you know fridging and yeah it's it's like it is it's such like the most tired uh and kind of hackneyed cliche well when they did that it didn't that didn't exist like that was the first time it was done and it really you know set the book apart in a lot of ways and talking to jerry conway about it one of the things that it really made me think about was just how like of all the you know they've i guess they've sort of 
you know, I don't want to say undone the storyline, but they've, you know, Gwen Stacy has had clones, which was yeah. another thing that Jerry Conway brought to the book. Maybe not in a calendar year, but uh, not no, long but that's after a, that's that. around one fifty or so where they right. have the clones, and you know, Peter is convinced that he doesn't need to see Doctor Connor's lab results because he's like, no, nah, I'm not the clone. I know I'm the real me. And then <laughs> what is it? That that's a period when I was reading in Spectacular when they're like, oh yeah, no, actually you are the clone. Uh, ben Riley's uh, been uh, Spider Man the whole time, but yeah, so but and he was on for quite a while, Jerry was as far as is my understanding so yeah he was able to you just so much of the storytelling that followed him it's not even derivative of it it's just more inspired by what he did when he was on the book and sure you give all the the credit to to stan steve and ramita but just the fact that he kept the character going in such a strong way throughout the 70s it's just impressive when you read those stories you know yeah, and I think it's worth mentioning, if people aren't too familiar with him, that when he started writing Spider-Man comics, he was like 19 years old, right. which is unbelievable. I mean, he basically was Spider-Man's age at the time. <laughs> and so one of the things that's fun about his books is they they really feel – now, they're now uh, 40 years later or whatever, they, they're certainly kind of caught in the trappings of their era a little bit, but the, the, the teenage-ness of them – is something that's really kind of nice. And when I talked to him, he had, he had joked because just a few years ago, he came back and wrote the uh, Spider-Man Renew Your Vows series, which was a really cool book that was sort of an alternate timeline where uh, Peter Parker, Mary Jane stayed married and they had a daughter and they all kind of uh, are superheroes together. And right. it's a really fun book, especially if you have a daughter and you love Spider-Man. It's like a really cool book to share with a with a daughter. But he was saying, you know, he's the youngest guy who ever wrote Spider-Man. And he's now like almost basically the oldest guy <laughs> to write Spider-Man right. because he's done it like over the course of 40, 50 years. And he said he doesn't think anyone will ever challenge him for that title because nobody else is going to get to write Spider-Man when they're 19 years old. You know, they might, you know, other people will write Spider-Man when they're in their 60s and their 70s and whatever. Yeah. But the, the idea of a 19-year-old writing the biggest comic book in the world yeah. is insane now to think of it would yeah, never and, now. and you know jim shooter i think started writing when he was like 15 or 16 first for dc yep. and you just you hear yep. those stories and you just think like how does that even happen you know i mean and then also i'm like i know i know the stories i was writing when i was 14 and uh i, I you know I, there's a reason i never showed them to anybody but uh <laughs> to just think about you know how prolific these uh these guys were um we we, we don't have that much time left i'm realizing and i really want to make sure we talk about just this great rogues gallery of Spider-Man villains and just the, you know, it's kind of epitomized for me with amazing Spider-Man annual number one, which is when the sinister six get together and like, well, we can't beat them by ourselves. Why don't we, why don't just the six of us try and beat the snot out of him? And, you know, you just start to think like, yeah, why doesn't that happen more often? You know, where they're just like, well, I don't know why he's always beating us, but what if we just outnumber him? Uh, but some of those characters, you know, the the iconic Spider-Man villains, some that we've seen in movies and in, uh, on animated series as well, uh, who stands out to you? Is the Green Goblin for you like, well, that's the definitive Spider-Man villain? Or does somebody else really stand out as, as somebody who surprised you that maybe looms larger in his life? 
you know, it's funny. Before I wrote the book, I would have definitely said Green Goblin. Uh, sure. Having written the book and and reread so much, it re- I really think now more that uh, Doctor Octopus is like the definitive. Like if you can only have one, yeah. Uh, villain, I it would be Doctor Octopus. Well, just he did. He did such a yeah. He tried to marry uh, Aunt May, and then he also uh, right. you know in in more recent years ends up in in Peter's mind. So you know, yes. <laughs> something to be said yeah. for that. <laughs> Yeah, he's just such a perfect foil because he is kind of like this, the ultimate kind of dark version of Spider-Man. His origin is so similar, um, and his it's just that his sort of, you know, I think something that later writers would fill in is sort of having this much darker, harsher upbringing than Peter Parker. It's like without an Aunt, Be- Aunt May and an Uncle Ben in his life, what would Peter Parker have turned into? Well, it might have been something like Dr. Octopus. And, um, yeah, all this stuff... Recently, where he became Spider-Man, um, I love those issues. I love the idea of Spider-Man, who is maybe the most inspirational superhero, being so inspirational a figure that he actually inspires his own yeah. arch nemesis to do good, I think is the just a beautiful kind of poetic concept. And uh, I love the idea of um, Spider-Man's goodness, like infecting Dr. Octopus so that he's still Dr. Octopus, yeah. but he's like. He 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 gets this new sort of moral perspective on things, um, and then even after he kind of returned to uh, villainy, I, I don't know why I have to say it like that. Well, but it's, you have to you have villainy, to you have to sound uh, like Otto Octavius when you say it. I I completely yes, understand. Exactly. Yeah, that even after he kind of uh, he he returned to super villainy, he like he like couldn't he couldn't put down uh, Spider Man's kind of the lessons that he learned yeah. as, as Spider Man, which is I think again it's just such a kind of beautiful um again almost poetic idea that um for me when you you look over the whole scope of things i gotta i gotta give the the nod to doc Ock, especially because you know there was so long where green goblin was quote unquote dead in the comics and dr octopus has been so kind of consistently involved throughout throughout all of those 57 years right and when and when harry's a green goblin it's not the same feeling you know i mean that that stretch right. where Norman Osborn knows that Peter Parker is Spider-Man, like that's that's the sweet spot for it. But it's so short-lived, uh, no pun intended. Again, because he he does end up dying in, in one twenty-two. And you know, speaking of the superior Spider-Man, uh, because the show that we're talking on is Marvel TV Weekly, it is worth noting that the current animated series Marvel Spider-Man, which is on Disney XD, they're doing a multi-part uh, superior Spider-Man storyline. Like literally right now, they I think that they're it's winding up in the next week or so and uh it's been fun to kind of see them you know it's tailor-made for a slightly younger audience but i mean it's probably for like tween slash teenagers so it's a it's kind of a fun series and uh dan slot's a supervisor on it so i i think that they uh you know it's definitely for kids but it's cool to kind of see these these things brought to the to the screen did you look at spidey and other media at all because like there was the 90s animated series which was you know fairly true to the books and of course the classic 60s series or did you just strictly stick to the comics the book is strictly about the comics right. that was sort of the uh the the marching orders i would sure. love to write a write another book all yeah. about all of those other things you mentioned i uh in terms of have i looked at them yes i've looked at all of them over you know 38 yeah. years of my life um and uh i love a lot of them so uh you know and we you, i don't know if you mentioned like Spider-Man video games is another yeah. like amazing kind of component of it. He translates incredibly well uh, across 
every medium. I don't think I've, I mean, there are some that are better, better than others, but I, I haven't, I haven't ever really seen anything where I was like, well, this doesn't work. Spider-Man just doesn't work as a, a blank, well, pretty much whatever it is. Yeah. Uh, he I translate. I think the, the live action seventies series uh, didn't work, but that was for an aesthetic for, you know, basically network television in the seventies and budget limitations, you know, I, I, there was, I, yeah, there were limitations there. Yes. Uh, but you know, I, I, I even rewatched some of those recently and they don't, they're not all that terrible. And, and Nicholas Hammond's a pretty good Spider-Man actually. Yeah. I, I enjoy him and, um, you could see the seed of a show that, you know, with better, a better budget, better technology that it could have actually worked, uh, pretty well. Yeah, exactly. I think it, you know, a show like the incredible Hulk, it's easier to do with budget limitations. Cause it's like, well, he's just not going to fight supervillains. He's just going to wander from town to town and he's, he's going to be Bill Bixby for most of the episode, you know? And, uh, I, you know, I think that just, uh, Spidey didn't work like that, you know, uh, whereas, you know, the Wonder Woman show of the same era, you know, it, it, certain characters, I think, uh, are, are better for that. You know, there's a reason that there wasn't a, you know, like a live action Batman at that time, because, uh, you know, it's just uh, what the what the money wasn't there. Uh, so as we kind of look to the future, what do you what would you personally like to see? This isn't like a prediction. What would you like to see having spent all this time in Spider-Man's history? Is there anything that you think it would be fun to see, you know, uh, Spider-Man is Sorcerer Supreme. Spider-Man is an agent of Hydra, you know, a double agent Spider-Man. Is there something that you're like, oh, you know, I've thought of the thing that they haven't done <laughs> despite 57 years and, you know, thousands and thousands of issues. Is there something that you'd like to see in the future? Uh, the one thing that just comes to mind off the top of my head is I really uh, loved all of the new uh, variations of Spider-Man they've introduced with uh, Spider-Verse and Spider-Get yeah. and all of these these big crossovers they've been doing lately. While I, I love Peter Parker uh, and you know he's my favorite from childhood and think that there's still plenty more stories you could tell with him. I've I've loved all of these seeing sort of how transmutable and how flexible the concept is and how you can put all of these different characters uh, into that universe. And I even I just love when they do weird characters you know, almost like, you know, kind of jokingly, you know, like there was the Aunt May who got spider powers, who was Spider-Ma'am. And there was right. the Spider's Man who was lots of little actual spiders <laughs> who somehow convinced themselves that they wow. were like a sentient body. And so it was like a pile of spiders that yeah. just looked like a person. So to me, it's like, I hope they keep doing that. I would love to see another one of those crazy crossovers. And I think they just started a new monthly Spider-Verse series that I haven't read yet. But to me, it's like I, I think it's so cool that they keep uh, kind of seeing how far they can push the like what how much how can much can you take out of Spider-Man and have it still be Spider-Man? Uh, yeah. I think that is so fun. And so to me, it's like I would love to just keep seeing them invent more new, weird uh, alternate variations of, of, of Spider-Man um, that that would be the number one thing I would most yeah. enjoy seeing. Right, which I think it's great when you have the Spider-Verse concept, you know, in comics, but also in the movie. And just having read so much in the era that I did, the fact that they had Spider-Ham in the movie, I was like, yeah, that's that that's who I want to see more than anybody. Yep. He's like, just go crazy. And yeah, I think I'm I'm with you. I like when there's Peter 
and then it, it you know the the current series that I'm referencing the Disney XD there's uh, you have Peter you have Miles uh, you also have Gwen you know you have a few people with spider powers and I'm like oh, I like that dynamic because when Peter's not there I'm like oh Miles is great but man I miss Peter though you know so I I think uh, I think it's great when they find a way to have multiple Spider Mans and even Spider Men I suppose uh, even when it is you know, through multiple, you know, multiverses, multiple dimensions and things. Um, the final thing, and I, because I only touched on it briefly, when you were going through the history, what was the impact on Todd McFarlane taking over the art duty on Amazing Spider-Man with 298 and then getting his own book, you know, sort of looking back on that, because now it's been like, I think, 30 years since he first drew an issue. Uh, where, how do, how does, how do those stories hold up in comparison and what do you think the impact was on the legacy maybe just in the near the you know the the immediate future after that uh on through today well i mean he certainly made an impact and had a had a legacy i mean you can uh it doesn't take you know one of the interesting things to do um researching this book was you know reading those issues was to like look at what a spider-man comic looked like yeah. You know, a month or two months before he started and then looking at what they all looked like a few months later after he had started, not just in his book, but but in the other books and things like, you know, the way that the look of Spider-Man's webbing changed. Yeah, where that's true. Throughout, you know, 30 years before he had drawn the book, it was always just kind of these straight lines with little lines inside. And he made the webbing, the, you know, like he basically made it part of the like panel layouts and artwork, you know, there were panels that were bordered by webbing and the webbing was so intricate with like lines and lines coming around the lines. And that almost became like the de facto way that everyone drew it uh, from that point forward. And it's almost like a way you can kind of demarcate um, eras in Spider-Man just by looking at sort of how the webbing is drawn, uh, how the eyes on the face are drawn, the, the, the physicality of the character uh, from an art artistic standpoint. I mean, it all, he brought all of this, you know, like dynamism and energy that just a few months earlier is just not there in the book. Even when the books are good, even when the artwork is beautiful, like he definitely brought something new and fresh to the series. And yeah, there were some, there were, you know, obviously there were some people that kind of aped his style or took some of the elements of it yeah. and brought it into their work. But um, yeah, but I think those- I think when you're an artist like Eric Larson and you take over after McFarland, there's a little bit of pressure of like, you know, we want people to keep buying this, you know, and uh, I think he's a great artist. I'm not trying to sell him short. It's just that's just the fact is it, it looked kind of similar. And I, I think that 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 was by design. And I think as time went on, they were like, but you're absolutely right. The web, as you started talking, the webbing was the thing that I was going to reference because it looked different. You know, what did it look like before McFarland? What did it look like after him? And I think that, you know, just the again, it's the, the same era of comic book collecting that I'm talking about. The same thing happened in the mutant books, just the idea of like, oh, we can sell more copies of this. We can have people buy more than one if we change the covers, if we put it in a bag and we do all of this. And I was like, yeah, but what what about what's inside? Is it good? And I, I won't put you on the spot, but Spider-Man number one, the, the fourth series, the Todd McFarlane series, it, it looked great. But man, there was there there was like nothing to read in that. That was this is one of the worst stories I've ever read, and this is me talking. I'm not putting any pressure on you, Matt. But and and just like you know, I was just like, oh, that, yeah, he's he's a great artist, and I think he went on to to write great stuff in Spawn. But it was just like 
oh yeah, that's not what Spider-Man should be. Like the story should should be great and they should also look good. And I think for the majority of the run and probably what you looked at, you probably saw that usually the stories and the art are firing on all cylinders. Right. Yeah, I think his his um his legacy on Spider-Man is much more as an artist than a writer. Yeah. I think I don't think anyone would argue that. I don't think he would argue that. I hope um, not. <laughs> uh and, and but but I mean I I don't think you should but I mean that said like you know his stuff on on the on the adjectiveless Spider-Man book, you know, he was writing to his art basically and 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 to his strengths as an artist essentially. So they're sort of art first books story second i would say um and then in terms of someone like eric larson yeah there's certainly some similarities in their styles but like even i would i mean even um you know a character like venom would not be sort of who he is without i mean eric larson really um i would say uh like kind of maybe like in some ways might be like the definitive venom artist even more than uh todd mcfarlane who uh you know obviously created the look of the character like everything about venom became more venomy yeah. Uh, with with Eric Larson. And there's a lot of Eric Larson Venom in the book, actually, because I just love his right. Venom with the crazy jaw and the and, weird green goo coming out of his yeah. mouth. And we <laughs> didn't and we didn't, we didn't uh, have carnage and we didn't have carnage until uh, Eric Larson as well. You know, so I think that the the Venom that gets turned into a major blockbuster of, of course, the, the design, the teeth that comes from McFarlane. But the just really starting to really figure out who the character is in this universe that he's in. Uh, obviously, you know, uh, uh, sorry, uh, Larson is a big part of that. Um, you know, we, uh, we've talked for almost an hour and, uh, you know, it wouldn't be too hard to, to speak for much more than that. Uh, the, the final thing I want to give you a chance to do is to, uh, give credit to, uh, Andrew Robinson, uh, who did the cover for the book. He also is the artist for Friendly Neighborhood Spider-Man. Is that another one of those things where you said, Hey, do you want to draw the cover or did you know him or how did that come about? That was uh, the, the the publisher gets all the credit for that. I didn't have anything to do with that. They oh, uh, reached out to him and got him to 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 paint the cover. And yeah, yeah I agree, it's absolutely uh, gorgeous. I mean, a lot of people when they sh- when they see the book, they're like, "Wow, the cover is uh, amazing." No pun intended. And <laughs> right. um, he was. I got to meet him at uh, New York Comic Con just uh, I guess a week or two ago. Yeah. And the uh, he had the original, like the actual painting oh, wow. there, and um, it was even more beautiful uh, in person, where you could see this just the detail of of the artwork, uh, and um, it was ama- It was incredible to look at um, uh, as an actual painting. I would have loved to. Uh, <laughs> I would have loved to have uh, figured out a way to steal that. But um, yeah. as a as a book cover, it's uh, it's not too shabby as well. It's a it's a beautiful cover. Yeah, he did it, and his he's doing the covers on Friendly Neighborhood Spider Man, and he's they're amazing as well. So yeah, yeah, we were very very lucky to have him do the cover. Yeah, there's 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 uh you know the the main Spider Man books you know amazing and Friendly Neighborhood that are out right now. The uh, you know the artwork inside is is great, but there you, you know just you look at the covers on some of them, and uh, yeah, Friendly Neighborhood uh, really stands out. And the book we're speaking about, of course, is Marvel Spider. Spider-Man from Amazing to Spectacular, the definitive comic art collection by our guest, uh, Matt Singer, who you can follow on Twitter at Matt Singer. And uh, I understand that uh, the book was ranked number one in a very specific category (laughs) on Amazon. I saw this on your Twitter. It's number one, and this is a quote from you, in the highly coveted historical and biographical fiction graphic novels category. But hey, you beat out another Marvel book and two Spider-Man books, because you 
can click through to see what the others are. Right. So, yes. you know, that, you can hang your hat on that a little bit. And uh, yeah, and the, the book is, uh, well, it's available on, you know, all, all of your online retailers. And uh, I've noticed that on Twitter, you'll also let people know places they can find it a little cheaper. So at Matt Singer for that kind of insight. Matt, thank you so much for uh, joining us. I really appreciate it. And uh, hopefully we uh, have a chance to uh, speak again uh, sometime in the near future. As I said, you're on Twitter at Matt Singer. Thanks again for uh, taking the time to talk to us. My pleasure. It was a lot of fun. And once again, thanks to Matt Singer. The book, Spider-Man from Amazing to Spectacular, available now for all of your holiday gift-giving needs. To uh, talk a little post-game, a little Spidey, uh, someone who is both amazing and spectacular, our friend Jeff Winstead, creator of The Alternate, I believe on Twitter, at Jeff Winstead. Jeff, welcome back to the Blackcast. Hey, Christian. Thank you. I keep it simple. Yes, it is at Jeff Winstead. Yeah, that's good. Uh, so thanks for uh, being in the live chat during the interview. You uh, managed to keep me honest on a couple of occasions. Yeah, yeah. It wasn't um, exactly my intention to publicly shame you on there. <laughs> like, I, I, I told you this, Ash. <laughs> I uh, I didn't quite I, I get the concept. I hadn't really chat, uh, live chatted on YouTube a lot, and I realized after a while that it's not the same thing as messaging you um, uh, personally. So, but uh, yeah, no problem. I was happy to yeah, help. Yeah, I mean, it was my it was my fault for uh, talking about stuff that I didn't really know and didn't really remember. I mean, I had read that Amazing Spider-Man 400 and uh, just sort of misinterpreted uh, the context of that story of that Aunt May saying, I always knew you were Spider-Man and me just feeling like, no, she didn't. So, you know, there was some of that, but uh, I appreciated it. But look, it's always fun to talk Spidey. And you know, when I'm going to talk to somebody who has kind of an all encompassing book like that, we spent a lot of time on an era of Spider-Man that uh, is near and dear to both you and I, which is that Roger Stern, Tom DeFalco era that it leads into the the David uh, Michelini, uh, Todd yeah. McFarlane era, which I think the the initial uh, couple years of that run I did enjoy. Like the, the McFarlane sure. at first I thought was, you know, just visually was like unlike anything I'd ever seen. But uh, as someone who is an artist, I kind of wanted to talk to you a little bit about the i guess the evolution of the style specifically speaking about amazing spider-man just some of your thoughts about the way that it visually changed throughout the 80s and into the 90s yeah you know um when i started reading uh, when ron friends was the artist like friends has that style that's very reminiscent of it's interesting sort of a combination of steve ditko and john amita senior yeah and he just kind of draws in a way that everything looks exactly how it's supposed to look. And so as a you know 14-year-old, it was hard to dissect that. So um, it looked very filmic. Uh, yeah. The interesting thing about those image guys like McFarlane and Jim Lee and Liefeld is they – <laughs> this sounds like a dig, but it's not. But because you could sort of see the, the method, because you could sometimes see the flaws – um, you can see how the work was done. Yeah. It actually made you, as an artist, it made me think, oh, yeah, I can do this. Yeah, I couldn't. <laughs> I couldn't do it nearly as well. Right. But it was like all of a sudden I could see behind the curtain a little bit, and I had an idea of how the like a certain technique was, was produced. Um, so it was very exciting. I think that's why probably why a lot of guys about our age like gravitated toward that stuff was it just had a lot of the energy, and it just felt uh, revolutionary in that way. Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah. I- 
And I don't know. I mean, look, it, it's a. Uh, I, I feel like, and I talked a little bit to, to Matt about this. The idea that we eventually got, you know, the uh, McFarlane imitators, and uh, I, I seem to really just put Eric Larson kind of lump him in that sure. basket because his style changed, and he, the, you know, look, I'm sure that was the job. It's like, yeah, we want you to drum like McFarlane. And uh, yeah, he but was it, totally asked to do that. Yeah. You could just tell. Yeah, and it, it was really like, essentially, it was the stories that I just kind of had enough with. You know, it was like too much venom, yeah. too much carnage, and uh, you know, there was like the cosmic Spider-Man storyline where I was just like, all right, I, I feel like uh, I feel like this isn't what I signed up for. You know, whereas I continued to read X-Men for a little while even after Chris Claremont left because it still kind of felt like the same book, and Spidey, it just felt different. Um, so, you know, and that, you know what happened is, is Michelini stayed on that book for a long time. Yeah. Like he, he went through McFarlane, then Larson and then Bagley. Yeah. Uh, and Bagley was on there for a long time too. Ba- and what's funny, I, I, I thought I had stopped reading, uh, like pretty much when, once Larson was gone Yeah, and I looked back over it and I was like, no, I actually held on for quite, quite a yeah. bit longer. I, I held on almost through. 400 with with a few exceptions right i i liked bagley's style because he did a web of spider-man at one point and what i always loved about mark bagley was that he was the winner of the marvel tryout book you know, yeah, so, exactly. so it like it, it proved because, you know, it's like if you look at old back issues, you see these ads for the tryout book. And look, you see stuff like that sometimes, you know, MTV like gave away a slot like be an MTV VJ. And, you know, and you have your American idols, some of whom you know who they are. And uh, a lot of them are hard to identify. Uh, but it was always kind of cool. Like, oh, that's the guy who like. Yeah, was... I had the book. Oh, yeah. I actually bought the book. Yeah, it, it was after uh, the contest part was over, so Bagley had already won or whatever. And you know, the prize was they were going to publish the book. Sort of the the so John John Romita Jr. was the penciler of the tryout pages oh, okay. right. that you got to ink or you got to letter or whatever you were uh, you know practicing at. Yeah, and sure. And then the the winner supposedly, in this case Bagley, was going to draw the rest of the story and it was going to be published. Well, that never happened. Right. Uh, but obviously, he did go on to get work and uh you know it was interesting the, tri- the trial book is great like it's a real interesting you know, back before the internet yeah uh, you, you know it's really the only information you you could really get on how this stuff is done so yeah i, I, I mean that's I why i was it. always interested in it i mean I, yeah. I think by the time that we got into the 90s i realized that as much fun as i had and i liked drawing superheroes and characters and things i wasn't particularly good at it you know so the idea of doing a tryout book uh was was not something that i ever would have done but i was always fascinated by the process and honestly i continue to be fascinated by the process like i love you know following ron friends on facebook he puts up a lot of sketches and you oh, know, sure, he, yeah. he has some very different styles you're kind of talking about the homage to uh ramita senior and dicko but also his work in thor was you know it, it was a very heartfelt homage but it was just very blatantly the style sure. of kirby and you know he just did, did that so well and uh, that, yeah, that's we, we've talked about this. That continues to be sort oh, of sure. my favorite style. So uh, it is interesting to see kind of the way that, uh, you know, a book evolves. I mean, you know, you have you have some other examples of that. I mean, you know, like Dave Cockrum to John Byrne over on the X-Men. I mean, that that, you know, Dave Cockrum is more of my 
typical cartoony style, but I, I thought that uh, John Byrne did amazing work. I prefer when John Byrne is inked by Terry Austin as he was in the X-Men. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Uh, I didn't like when he inked his own work for the uh, the FF. It sort of gave it like a quality that I didn't like as much. I, I don't know if that's something you've ever thought about, uh, but the role that an inker can actually play over someone's pencils. No, it makes a huge difference. And Terry Austin is one of those guys that he he's inked uh, he inked Rick Leonardi on the Cloak and Dagger miniseries too. I believe. Oh yeah, you're right. Yeah, really elevated that. I mean, not, not by elevated. Like I love Rick Leonardi, but it was early in his career, and so it really elevated that stuff. Yeah, and um, he did a lot of stuff at you know DC too. I think he was the inker on uh, there's a famous Detective Comics run uh, with Batman, uh, Steve Englehart, and Marshall Rogers, and he inked. Penciler Marshall Rogers on that stuff is great stuff. Yeah, and I think Steve Englehart and Marshall Rogers did uh, Silver Surfer at one point. I, I believe they worked together on that. Oh, because actually, that, you're right. Yeah, yeah, that, that was that sort of that one-two punch. Seven yeah. relaunch. Yeah, yeah. I mean, that, there seemed to be kind of a lot of that. You know, you had the whole creative teams, you know, leaving from one to the other for a variety of reasons. Um, to bring it back to Spidey for a moment here, I was wondering. You know, we've talked a lot about Amazing, but did you read? Spectacular Spider-Man with any consistency? Did you read Web of Spider-Man uh, and uh, Marvel Team-Up, or, or were you mostly into Amazing Spider-Man? There was a point when I read all three. Now, at that time, like when I got into it, Team-Up was already canceled. Right, yeah. yeah. So, Team-Up uh, yeah. after issue 150, I think it was right. even the next month, it just turned into Web of Spider-Man, starting exactly. over again so, with like, issue even one. Even though I'm a little older than you, um, I, I got into the comics a little later. Yeah. So like my first amazing issue was two seventy like off the stands. Oh yeah, I bought yeah, it yeah. at seven eleven. Right. So uh, yeah, we were, mine, that was already pretty deep into right. the and, uh, and, black and, costumes. Yeah, and mine was two fifty four. So it's a okay. full like year plus uh, before yeah, that. Yeah. yeah. So yeah. So no, at one point I was reading um, Web and Spectacular. At that point they had dropped the Peter Parker. Yeah, I remember that. Yeah. And. Yeah, I so just, I, you you got to feel that they were different. Uh, it was a different tone, you know. I mean, they obviously yeah. worked hard. The the editorial staff worked to there to be consistency. But, I mean, the Peter David run on Peter Parker the Spectacular Spider-Man with, you know, ongoing stories like the death of Gene DeWolf and stuff like that, it just it, it felt so different than, than, uh, than Amazing Spider-Man, which was, you always sort of felt like that was the flagship book. And then the other Spideys were kind of like, well, if you really like Spidey, why don't you buy these other ones, sure. you know? Yeah, um, Peter Parker, at the time David was writing it, uh, he did this interesting thing where you wouldn't see the credits until the last panel. Oh, yeah, I remember that. Last page. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I think I'd read, I, I don't know if it started with his run, but I believe it did. It was sort of to make the book seem more like a film, like a television show. Sure. So, which is pretty interesting. Yeah, that's kind of a cool thing. Yeah, you see that every once in a while where you get the, yeah. the credits at the end. And sometimes, you know, they, they save the title for the end. Like uh, Amazing Spider-Man 121, the title's actually on the last page, the night that Gwen Stacy died, you know? Oh, right. Because yeah. <laughs> if you put that on the front page, you're <laughs> like, oh, so that's what happens. You know, it kind of has that, that cool cover where it's like somebody dies and who could it be? And it has all these other all these characters, you know, so it keeps you guessing. So, um, yeah, I think uh, – I, I don't know. I it, it's It's always interesting to hear – kind of the evolution because Matt Singer, this book that he talked about, it goes well beyond the stuff that I read and the storylines that I'm glad I didn't read. Like, uh, I think brand new day is one, you know, there, there's a whole bunch that I'm glad I didn't read, but 
there's also there has to be stuff in there that uh, I I don't know if I had a book like Matt's in front of me I would probably flip through and it would be like oh well these are this is, sounds like something that I'd like to read you know it's almost like yeah. flipping through the trade paperback shelf at the comic book store instead of like looking through all the back issues you know you're almost like where's where's the storyline that I'm most interested in you know you know I actually suspect um, reading the Clone Saga. Yeah. knowing that it was undone at the end would probably be kind of fun. Yeah, and that's true. Because I had read, um, I wasn't buying it at the time, luckily, So, but I, uh, a friend of mine was, so I would read his copies, and I thought it was just garbage. Like, uh, But then when they wrapped it up, they had a pretty good four-part storyline that, uh, uh, let's see, uh, John Romita Jr. came back and drew the last issue up. It's a yeah. great issue. He was he was really hitting on all cylinders. They actually wrapped that storyline up pretty well. So other than that, it was just really – at that point, they had connected the three books. And I always hated when they did that, when you had to read. Well, I only liked it with uh, Craven's Last Hunt. and then Oh, they, well, that was an exception because the same creative team. Yeah, that was the same creative team, so that worked. Yeah, and then they tried to kind of have lightning strike twice with whatever that like Asylum or whatever that storyline was, which I think didn't didn't hit as quite as well. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Uh, well, as we wind down here, kind of the I, I made no bones about it when I was speaking with Matt and I didn't want to put him in a spot. But uh, that standalone book just called Spider-Man, the McFarlane book, it, it, it was such a huge disappointment to me because I at that point, I still was really impressed by the artwork. But, sure. you know, it, it really is what made me realize is like it doesn't matter how cool it looks if there's not even like a decent story. You got to have something. You know, and I'm wondering what kind of feeling did you have about that McFarlane book, which is, you know, that that Spider-Man number one. It's not the best-selling comic of all time. I think it's still uh, X-Men number one, the Jim Lee, Chris Claremont sure, X-Men number yes, one. Yeah. But that's still up there. And uh, what did you think about that book? So I loved it. At that point, McFarlane, to me, could do no wrong. Right. So I was I was so into the art that any any flaws in the storytelling, I just ignored. Yeah, and the the first storyline was actually a follow up of sorts to Craven's Last Hunt, so that oh, was kind of yeah. interesting. I forgot and, about that. Yeah, 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 yeah. And then they did that two parter with Wolverine that was actually pretty good. If I, they brought back that Wendigo character from his like first appearance in the Hulk, I think. So that oh, was actually yeah, pretty yeah, decent. Yeah. yeah, yeah. So you know, it was it was it was fun. You know, he he obviously goes on after that to do Spawn. Yeah. And, which I enjoyed you also the first few issues of at that point you start to notice he's doing a lot of pages where there's like a lot of dialogue just yeah like just a dialogue dump on a page because he doesn't know how to work it into the storytelling so I was starting to get a little more aware of his uh, flaws as a writer yeah yeah I would say that the standalone Spider-Man book is when I realized that at least for me uh Todd McFarlane could certainly do wrong uh, and, I, and while I never really read the Spawn book, I did really like the animated series on HBO in the late 90s. I thought that was incredibly well done. And I know he, sure, was, yeah. in, he was involved in that. I mean, I think he used to kind of be like the Crypt Keeper and introduce each episode, you know. Uh, so, uh, yeah, I mean, I, 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 you know, I, I'm still I'm still impressed by his work. It's just at this point, the work that I appreciated was like 30 years ago now, you know, which is crazy sure, to yeah. think about. But uh, yes, it's yeah. just wild. Well, uh, it's always fun to go down uh, Spidey memory lane, and I'm glad that uh, you were there. Uh, you were there along for the ride. Uh, what is uh, the latest on your book, The Alternate? Are we going to see a, a new issue in 2020? Do you think? You're going to ask me that on air, do you? 
I, I'm asking you on air right now. No, we will see <laughs> We will see an issue in 2020. I actually just saw the last page of finished artwork. Oh, great. So it's totally penciled, uh, totally inked, that five pages to color. It's almost finished. The original artist, uh, his name is Daniel Geet from issue one. He did the first half of issue one. He's coming back to oh, cool. do the last six pages of issue six, which is going to kind of wrap up the storyline. So I'm and, really excited. He looks great. And, yeah. Uh, we're happy and, with the story. So. And, and I, don't, I, I don't know how noticeable it's been to you, but I have noticed on Twitter that because we have talked about the alternate, I know some people have found it. On Comicsology, I believe our own uh, Jeff Prime, Jeff One, uh, Jeff DeRay has uh, has read it, and I think he's talked to you about it. So uh, yeah, it was very nice of him to uh, check it out. I appreciate it. Yeah. So uh, well, I'm excited to uh, have it all get uh, get wrapped up and, and see where it goes. Uh, anything uh, anything else to look forward to in 2020? Uh, any any new varieties of uh, Lone Star beer? Yeah, if you're in, uh, yeah, there'll be some new Lone Rider stuff. So if you're in the North Carolina area, I think you have a couple of listeners who are, if I remember. So yeah, you can yeah, pick up. Yeah, we do. Yeah, uh, yeah, absolutely. River, you know, Harris Teeter, uh, probably the new Wegmans. Yeah. I believe they one in Raleigh, that kind of stuff. Yeah, there's always new Lone Rider stuff coming out. Oh, and if you go to the, there's a hideout in Raleigh. It's a standalone tap room. The menu has a two-page comic of mine. Oh yeah, I think I think I remember you showed me that you were working on that uh, at some. Yeah, point, I had so. to. If I had not send it to you, I will. Yeah, so yeah, a that'd two-page cool. uh, cool. Western comic. So. Well. Jeff, uh, thanks as always, and uh, you know, in 2020, uh, maybe you'll you'll be all caught up with all the Marvel movies. Uh, I I know <laughs> I, I bullied you into seeing Endgame with me, but uh, I just felt like you needed to see that one uh, that one in person, you know. But uh, we're sort of a, a, at a stretch where there's not really a lot. I mean, 2020 is just going to have Black Widow in May and Eternals in November, so you're not going to be missing out on too much, which I think will uh, probably be for the best. That's true. I think as of now, I'm caught up, right? Because I did see uh, Far From Home when it came out on DVD. What did you, uh, what, since we're talking about Spidey, what did you think yeah. of Far From Home? Liked it. Really liked it. Yeah, it's uh, fun. I don't know. I, yeah, I enjoyed it. It's interesting it. how many of the villains in the Marvel Universe are, like, is Tony Stark in that positive or net negative for the universe? We can yeah. see he inspires a lot of uh, bad guys. <laughs> but, yeah, it's true. Uh, other than that, yeah, I liked it quite a bit. It was fun. Yeah, it was Funny. fun. And then, you know, the reveal of uh, J. Jonah Jameson at the end was something we were all very excited about. And uh, yeah, I'm yeah. really looking part. forward. And actually, I hadn't, hadn't heard about that. It was not spoiled for me, so that was interesting. Well, that means you didn't listen to the uh, to the, the Black Cast uh, Spider-Man uh, Far From Home uh, special. I don't listen until after I've watched Very it. So smart. Like six months delay. Yeah. I forget who it is, but there's somebody on Twitter who uh, they always listen to our spoiler-filled one first because they want to manage their expectations. I still don't understand it, but uh, <laughs> I appreciate anybody who listens. And, yeah, of course, so way to go. and, of course, more than that, I also always appreciate anybody who's on the show, like our friend Jeff Winstead, whom, as I mentioned earlier, can be found on Twitter. Twitter and Instagram at Jeff Winstead. Jeff, happy new year. And I uh, look forward to having an excuse to have you back on the black cast in 2020. Uh, I, I am, uh, I've been uh, just falling behind, but I do very much plan to read all of crisis on infinite earths because I'm not interested in watching the CW TV version of it, but uh, seeing it in the news and kind of trending like that has made me remember, like I really want to read that. And Jeff was kind enough to uh, give me a trade paperback. So uh, hopefully we have a chance to talk about that in 2020. 
Yeah, let's do it. I love it. All right. Uh, again, that's Jeff Winstead. Look for the alternate on Comixology and at Jeff Winstead. Uh, that's all the time we have uh, for this installment. Thanks again to Jeff Winstead and thanks to Matt Singer. We'll see you next time on The Black House. Spidey Bells, Spidey Bells. Is this who I've become? Selling out my good name for an impulse buy album. Oh, Spidey Bells. Spidey Bells. I'm filled with deep regret. I'm canceling this song's release before the press. I get. Oh, Spidey Bells, Spidey Bells swinging through Midtown. Oh, what fun to sling a web and take the bad guys down.